I wanted to share that with you guys because it's just a real good word. That word will be something we look back on, okay? If you want to, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to keep walking through the Sermon on the Mount this morning. We're going to keep hammering into our series here of the good life. While you're turning there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some, I'm going to build some foundations that I've already built and do some review for some of the new people in the room. <clears throat> Here's the deal. This is the seventh week that we've been in this series called The Good Life, and and the reason, that we've, uh, the reason that we've been in this series, the reason we've been farming in this direction, if you want to say it that way, is because one of the things that, that I've tried to hopefully lay out for us is, is that we wanted to look at the Scriptures over the past few weeks, and we wanted to investigate them and allow the Scriptures, not only, not only do we want to investigate the Scriptures, but we want the, the Scriptures to investigate us. And one of the things I feel like we've begun to illuminate is this. It's, it's a very simple premise, and it's that the good life is the life that's connected with Jesus and his kingdom. The, the, the kingdom of heaven is the best thing for you. There is no such thing as a good life apart from submission to Jesus as king and entrance into his kingdom. So here's the deal. The world will tell you, the world will tell you all kinds of definitions. The world and the currents of culture try to define the good life in all sorts of ways. And for the most part, they define the good life in two, two main ways. The two main ways they define it is this acquiring the good life the good life if you read magazines if you watch tv the, the the tv and the magazines will basically tell you that the to, in order to live the good life you need to you need to live a life of acquisition and when you acquire you need to acquire more and after you filled your closets with what you've acquired you need to you need to burn what's in your closet so that you can acquire more and if you don't want to burn what's in your closets then maybe just build a bigger house You know, after you get the four-bedroom, three-bathroom brick home, you need to go for the five-bedroom, four-bathroom brick home. And so life becomes, life becomes basically an endeavor of acquisition, more and more. How can I get my stuff, and how can I build a house that can hold more stuff so that I don't have to give up my old stuff? So that's one thing. The other thing that the currents of culture will tell you about the good life is this. The good life is defined by doing what you want, what you want, when you want, and with whom you want to do it, Anytime. And I want to tell you, if you believe those things, you're sowing into a kind of lifestyle that will leave you disappointed. Jesus says this in John chapter 10. We've, we've hit this every single week, I think, but I just, I can't help it. John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus says this. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And and so one of the things I want to start off with this morning is this. You're either being stolen from or you're being given to. Bottom line. You're either being stolen from or you're being given to. You're either, you're either being killed and destroyed or you're being restored and renewed. And the good life of the kingdom is the overflowing life that comes from Jesus. And you say, well, overflowing with, with what? Overflowing with what? This is one of my favorite scriptures. It's from Romans chapter 14. Marcus, you can put that one up. There we go. This is what Paul says. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, 
but of righteousness, or over here it's just righteousness, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's righteousness over here as well. For the king, I'm telling y'all, I'm, I'm looking for more righteousness in my life. But the good life of the kingdom, the good life of the kingdom is a life that's overflowing with righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. How many of y'all, want, how many of y'all would like your life to overflow with righteousness, peace, and joy? And so here's what I want to tell you. To align yourself with Jesus is to align yourself with the overflowing righteousness, peace, and joy of the kingdom. Here's the deal. You can't get righteousness, peace, and joy in any other way. Some of us are like, man, I don't know about righteousness. That sounds a little heavy, but I'll definitely take peace and joy. Okay, we'll just talk about peace and joy. You can't get peace and joy in any other way other than align yourself with Jesus and his kingdom. There's only one way. Last week we jumped out of, uh, out of Matthew and we jumped into John chapter 10. And we looked at some of the verses before John chapter 10, verse 10. We looked at some of those first verses in chapter 10. And one of the things, that, one of the things I tried to point out was that, was that life in Jesus has boundaries. This is John chapter 10, verse 1. I'm going somewhere, so just hang with me. John chapter 10, verse 1. This is what Jesus says. He says, I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. Go ahead and put up John chapter 10, verse 7, Marcus, because I want want you to see this. Therefore, Jesus said to you, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. Here's the deal. When you come to Jesus, you enter in through him, he's the gate into what? A sheep pen. And it's one of the things that most people don't realize is that when you enter into the kingdom and when you enter into the good life, what you've actually done is you've entered into a sheep pen. And what does a sheep pen speak of? It speaks of boundaries. And it's one of the things that people hate the most, but it's one of the things that will actually save you and protect you in the long run. Jesus says in chapter 10, verse 7 and following, he says, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. And so, you know, you might be asking, well, what's the point? Well, the point is this. Number one, the good life is only found through Jesus. It's only coming through the gate that is Jesus. Not only that, any other person, any other system, any other philosophy is a robber, a thief, and a liar. And and here's one of the things that's confounded me lately, is how many people I've met, even how many good friends I have, who will will chase other people, and especially other philosophies, searching for the good life when they've encountered the good life in Jesus. Man, I tell you, it's a tragedy. It's an absolute tragedy. The good life is in a person, and it's the man Jesus. And if you want to encounter the good life, you're going to have to deal with Jesus right up front. He's the gate, and he's the door into it. So Jesus, he's the the source, the carrier, and the distributor of the good life. The good life comes with boundaries. And even though the currents of culture tell you that Happiness comes from doing what you want, when you want, and with who you want. 
the good life is a life lived on our own terms, one of the things we see in the kingdom of heaven is that the kingdom runs counter to the cultural currents. Everybody in the room believe me that the good life has boundaries? Does it bother anybody? Do the boundaries of the kingdom ever bother you? Yeah, sometimes they do. I'm not going to lie. Sometimes the boundaries of the kingdom bother me. But if you don't believe that the, that the kingdom of heaven has boundaries, or, or if it upsets you that the kingdom of heaven has boundaries, if, the, if it upsets you that the good life has boundaries, why don't you just call Tiger Woods? See, here's the deal. The currents of culture tell us, do what you want, when you want, and with who you want. And that was, that's where happiness is. How many of you think that Tiger Woods is experiencing overflowing righteousness, peace, and joy this morning? <laughs> see, no, it's not. It's, but it's, it's a, see, here's the deal. Right now, right now, the Tiger Woods is a parable for everybody in America who's got ears to hear. He's a parable. You sow into your life in certain directions. It, 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 may, it may be fun at the minute, at the beginning. It may even, it may even have the illusion of good. It, 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 you may have everybody in the world fooled, but it always comes out. And the good life has boundaries. See, here's the deal. The boundaries of the sheep pen, they provide for us. They provide the provision of God. They provide the protection of God, and they provide the presence of God. I'm really interested in the provision. I'm really interested in the protection, and I'm, I'm most interested in the presence. Because here's the deal. This is what the Scripture says. It says this. It says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. I want to tell you something. It's not freedom if, it, if freedom leads you to destruction. See, Tiger Woods lived how many years in, in supposed freedom, doing what he wanted, when he wanted, with who he wanted, and what has it bought for him? Not much. And so we get to the, what I feel like is the central issue of this whole series. And the central issue is this. Do I believe and trust that Jesus is the good life? That's what, that's what we're getting down to. It's, it's really a simple, a simple, simple question. It's this. Do I believe that Jesus is the source? And do I trust Jesus? Do I believe that Jesus is the master of living? That's the thing we're going to deal with this morning. Do I believe that Jesus is the master of living? Because if I really believe that Jesus is the master of living, I come into a sheep pen, and when I get in there, I'm like, man, this is a great place. You can ask yourself this question since we've been talking about Tiger Woods. You can ask yourself this. When I hear Jesus' words about lust and adultery, do I believe that he's trying to suck the fun out of life or do I realize that he's directing me in the kind of life that is truly good and blessed? Do I believe that there can be lifelong joy and fulfillment in covenant marriage? Is my definition of joy multiple sexual partners and a golf club through the back glass of my Escalade? You can take notes. (laughs) 
So before we get into our scripture this morning, we, need to, we just need to ask ourselves and begin to even deal with our heart right now. You know, just swallow the donut, put the coffee down and begin to deal with our heart and say, is Jesus the master of living? Is he, is he just, is he the, is he, did, he, did Jesus actually live better than anyone else who ever lived? And if he did, does he have something to say for me today? Let's read Luke chapter 6. Luke, what am I talking? Matthew. Thank you, Ray. I am very scatterbrained today. I'm not even going to lie. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. I think that's a 25 unless my brain's lying to me. We're going to read down to verse 34. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and get it out. We're going to put it on the big screen, but get your Bible out because it's good for your own eyes to see where it is in your own Bible. This is Jesus, and he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They don't labor, and they don't spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith. Why do you, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, and what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. Why don't we pray for just a second? Father, we need your help this morning. Father, we need your help this morning. Father, would you, would you come into the, into the room and would you, uh, would you break stained glass religion? And Father, would you allow us to, to have a fresh ear, a fresh eye, and a fresh heart on what this scripture says? Father, would you deliver us from familiarity? Father, Father would you deliver me from the notion that, that I already have this down and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm past that? Or God, would you deliver me from the notion that this is an elementary word of Jesus and that I'm in grad school. And Father, would you afford me the opportunity to realize that you're here for me this morning and that this word is for me. Thanks, Lord. Amen. We're in Matthew chapter 6. We've been working our way through Matthew chapter 5, 6, and we're going to hit 7 next week. And um, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, this is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And what I, what I think I've said it before, but I want to say it again. The thing you've got to realize about Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is that the Sermon on the Mount, it's Jesus' treatise on how to live the good life. It's, it's Jesus' treatise on how to be my disciple. Three chapters, it's Jesus' careful and thoughtful instruction on how to be my disciple and how to live the good life. If you want to live the good life, you need to be a serious student of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. He says, therefore I tell you, so we ought to stop right there. 
And the reason we ought to stop right there is because that word therefore connects it back to what he had, had just immediately said before that. And um, we need to see the, the larger context that Jesus is building out of. And the larger context that Jesus is building out of is, is chapter 6, verse 19, when he's talking about treasures in heaven. Starting in verse 19, Jesus begins to talk about, and he says, talk about the way that our hearts treasure things. And he says, here's the deal, guys. If you want to live the good kind of life, don't be the kind of person who treasures and lays up for yourself treasures on earth, but be the kind of person who sees that kingdom of heaven is treasure and begins to lay up for themselves treasure in heaven. And before we get into that very much, one of the things we probably ought to clarify is this. When the Lord's talking about treasure here, you know, the first thing that comes into our mind usually is probably like dollar signs, and we, we assume that he's just talking about money. But the truth of the matter is, he's talking about money and a whole lot of things. You know what I'm saying? Have you realized that your own heart can treasure multiple things and not just money? See, um, my kids are like this. Uh, my kids have an un, un, unbelievable ability to, to treasure something. It's, it's something that's innately human. The, the ability to, to have our loves and affections our thoughts and our dreams placed upon an object or, or a person or a relationship or a thing. You know, my kids, they, um, depending on how old they are, they treasure different things. My, my middle son, Seth, loves Transformers, you know. And, and they're not just Transformers to him. They're not just toys. They're his treasure, you know. He, he loves them. And so um, one time I broke one of his Transformers, and he cried. I'm like, dude, it's five bucks, and we can get it at Walmart. That was, an, ins- that was a, you know, an insensitive father thing to say. From his perspective, it was treasure. You know? So Jesus is talking about money here, but he's not just talking about money. He's talking about how our, how our hearts latch on to things and our affections. And he's saying, hey man, don't live with your affections attached to that which is just earthly. Live with your affections attached to those things which are in heaven. And he's, he's actually saying, let's adjust our view, let's adjust our priority scale a little bit. And treasure, treasures are the intimate affections of our heart. Those things we think about, talk about, dream about, and the root of so many of our motivations. I read a story on, uh, on yahoo.com a couple weeks ago, and it was, about, uh, it was about a guy who got shot, he was murdered. And uh, the reason the guy was shot and murdered was that evidently it was a robbery gone bad, and when the cops came and, and, and rolled the guy over, he was shot in the street and he was laying on his, on his face. And when they rolled him over, clenched tightly in his fist was his Rolex watch. And you go, you go my goodness, the guy, what, what happened? The guy lost his life because he treasured his Rolex watch more than life. It's like, dude, just give it up, right? It's, it's, a, picture of, it's a picture of treasure. It's a picture of, of what we treasure. And I want to tell you this, though, that Jesus isn't saying, hey, you know, it's not okay to have nice things. But he's warning us about the place in our own hearts where we give things. It's the position in our heart that he's warning us about. Jesus goes on to say, he says, you can't have two masters. You can't, you can't serve both God and money. And um, this is one of those places in the NIV where the translation's not great. Jesus says you can't serve God and money. Probably some of you all have a have a KJV laying around. And what does the KJV say? You can't serve both God and what? Mammon. And, and here's the deal. There's a lot of debate about what mammon is, but here's, here's what mammon is. Mammon is the demonically inspired 
personification of greed and wealth. And Jesus is, Jesus is pointing out to us a, a real trap. And he's saying, look, you're going to live one of two ways. You can't have two masters. You're going to live one of two ways. Your heart is either going to be focused and, and, and pointed toward heaven. The affections and the treasure of your heart is going to be found in heaven. Or it's going to be found in acquiring more. And when you begin to uh, let the heart and affections of your, of your, of your person begin to, begin to begin to be set upon things and begin to be set upon acquiring more, you begin to leave me and your affections turn to another God that you can't even see. Yeah, he's pointing out that when the intimate affections of our hearts are motivated and satisfied by material gain, we actually turn our backs on God and we begin to serve another. And I wanted to get through all that because this is the broader context of, of what Jesus is talking about when, he, when we get to verse 25 and he says, Hey guys, therefore do not worry about your life. He's saying in light of the fact that, that a lot of people are going to put their treasure, are going to build up treasure here on the earth, and in light of the fact that, that doing so actually causes you to turn your back on me and, and begin to serve another, in light of that fact, Man, we really, I'd like for you guys to not worry. Verse 25, let's read that. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Have you guys noticed that uh, through Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and on into 7, have you guys noticed how contemporary such old scriptures are? Have you noticed how like the words of Jesus maintain relevance? I love, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. And have you guys noticed that our culture is consumed, number one, with worry and then number two, with worry about what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink and what we're going to wear. You can go to a magazine rack in Walmart and you could pick out any magazine rack. I, I left my magazines in my, I went and bought some magazines yesterday. But I left my magazines in my office. But the whole rack is full of magazines. And every magazine is basically hinging upon, hinging upon this desire that we have to acquire better food, better drink, and better clothes. And so there's a whole system, a whole culture that's, that's just wrapped up in this thing. There's nothing, there's nothing more culturally relevant than than the words of Jesus to us this morning. I also think it's pretty funny. I think he's really talking to everybody in the room. He's talking to the men and the women. He says, you know, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat or drink. That's the men. And then he goes, and don't worry about what you're going to wear. That's the women. See, he's, he's pointing out everybody right now. And here's what the Lord's actually telling us to worry about not to worry about. He's actually saying, he's actually saying, man, the good life of the kingdom is the life where you don't worry about your basic provisions. The good life is a life where you don't worry about your basic provisions. Let me say it this way. There's no part of the good life that includes the worried life. There's no part of the good life that includes the anxious life. See, here's the deal. When the treasure of my heart rests upon material gain, I'm satisfied by another, and then the door is wide open, and the door is open to anxiety and worry. 
See, when the treasure of my heart is satisfied and fascinated by another, when the door of my heart is, at that point, the door of my heart becomes wide open and it becomes wide open for two main things, worry and anxiety. Where does worry and anxiety come from? It comes from a heart that is treasuring things on earth. I was reading this week about anxiety and worry. In 1990, so, you know, nearly 20 years ago, here in just a few days, in 1990, 14, that was weird. I'm with you, John. I know. I'm like, I was born in 1978. I used to think that was like, so it's like so far away now. 1990. If you were born in 1990, you're 20 years old. Just a few days. Psycho. Okay. But I was reading just a few days about this, a few days ago about this. And in 1990, 14% of Americans were diagnosed with some sort of anxiety disorder. Okay? What do you think the percentage is? Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. What do you think the percentage is in 2008? That's pretty good, Peter. Actually, actually, the, the, actually the, the percentage of people who are actually diagnosed with some sort of anxiety disorder is a little over 19%. So from 1990 to the year 2008, we increase by nearly 20% the amount of people who have an actual diagnosis from, from a doctor who's qualified to give you that diagnosis of anxiety disorder. You know what 19% is of the population? 19% of the population is one out of five. You know what that tells me? It tells me it's us in the room this morning. You know, just count down the row. One, two, three, four. There, you know. One, two, three, four. Five. And then one, two, three, four. And then Zach. And then, you know. One. Literally, 19% of people have an actual diagnosis. Jesus goes on to say in, in verse 25, he, he asks this question. He says, is life, is not life more important than food? Is not life more important than food? How many of us realize, how many of us realize that Jesus isn't asking a question when he asks the question, is not life more important than food? He's actually saying life is more important than food. How many of you realize this? That when, you're, when, you're, when your worldview and when your heart and when your days are totally captivated with worry and anxiety, you're not really living. That's what the Lord's saying. He's saying, he's saying to, the extent, to the extent that I allow anxiety and worry to have a place in my heart is the extent to which I stop living the kingdom kind of life. And the extent to which I stop living at all. Because there's no part of the good life that includes the worried life. Pam Robles, she's our, um, she's our missionary down in Lima, Peru. She posted something this week that was just brought all of my memories of Lima back into, back into focus. I'm sure some of you guys read it. I'm sure, I think Joyce even commented on it. But Pam told this story. Now, here's the deal. Here's what you need to know about Lima. Lima is third world, okay? It's an enormous city. It's two and a half times bigger than New York City, okay? There's like 14 million people crammed into this little valley, 
You can literally drive from the south end. If you started driving in the south end of Lima, you could point your car north. You could drive two and a half hours. You'd never leave the city. You'd never leave concrete. And you'd never leave people. It's just, it's a zoo. And it's for the most part, it's third world. Well, anyway, Pam posted this little thing on Facebook this week. And what she posted was this, that, that outside of her neighborhood, uh, the roads had gotten bad, and so giant potholes. And so she wakes up, she sees some guys working out there. They have their little uniforms on. And for whatever reason, uniforms really mean something in South America. So if you're, like, if you're working on something, you've got your uniform. And usually it's a really humiliating uniform. It's one of the things I've noticed while traveling down there. They'll put you in this like orange jumpsuit. You look like an inmate. But anyway, so there's these guys, and they're out front, and they're filling the potholes. And they fill the potholes around the neighborhood. And then she notices they don't take their equipment and leave. They don't even leave. They stop working. They get on the street corner at the intersection. They take their hard hats off and they hold them out. And she asks her neighbor, why are those guys out there holding their, holding their hard hats out? And the neighbor tells her, oh, they're asking for money. And then Pam says, well, why are they asking for money? Didn't, don't they work for the city? And she says, no, they just, they just filled the potholes and now they're asking the neighborhood to come and pay them for what they just did. You say, well, what's the point, Adam? The point is this, you know, we spend so much time worrying about provisions of life when, when the truth of the matter is, and this is something that Richard and I experienced dramatically back in August when we were down in, in Peru. You go to Lima, you go to a place where, where the city doesn't have employees to fill the potholes and abject poverty is so rampant that dudes will go and buy themselves a jumpsuit, fill the potholes, grab the hard hats out, and stay there until someone fills them, enough at least to buy food for mom and the kids. Here's the thing I've realized. The whole city is like that. And then Richard and I, we will go, we will go to uh, the Vineyard Church in Ladaris. It's this, and Travis knows this as well. It's tiny. It's a tiny little block building. And every time I've ever gone there, I've experienced righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, what's the point? The point is this. The point is this. The good life has nothing to do with the worried life. And and the good life doesn't have anything to do with necessarily having all of your needs met in the way that you think they ought to be met. It's so it's these these people live in live with radically less than we do, and yet they have abundance of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Never, never, never been in the, in the vineyard church in Ladaris that there wasn't a a tangible joy in the house. It's remarkable. Twenty six. Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Who feeds the birds? Open book test. Who feeds the birds? Oprah. Oprah, <laughs> Oprah feeds the... Anybody else want to take a stab? Glenn Yoder feeds the birds. Any, any, the fa- thank you. Thank you. Yeah, the father feeds the birds. Look at the birds of the air. They don't, they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't store away in barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Who feeds the birds? Your heavenly father. And here's the deal. This is, I think this is a pretty powerful revelation about, about, number one, about God, and then about the, the disastrous effects of worry and anxiety. See, here's the deal. Little birds, giant birds, 
birds in the air, birds that run along the ground like the kiwi, which is a mysterious little bird. I've got a good... I watch a lot of Animal Planet. The kiwi is a fascinating animal. But the father feeds the birds... The father feeds the birds of the air. And here's, here's the deal. Anxiety, anxiety actually dissolves, anxiety actually dissolves our, our understanding of the reality that we have a father in heaven. Birds of the air, they're perfectly cared for by the father in heaven. And anxiety and worry Anxiety and worry, it's a blinder. It actually blinds me to the fact that I belong to my Father. Anxiety and worry blinds me to the fact that I'm a child who's cared for by the Father. I can say it this way. Anxiety and worry elevate my need beyond my status as beloved by the Father. Some of us, probably the musicians in the house are like, man, this is an awesome scripture. Birds, they don't work. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't stow away in barns. And the Father feeds them. Come on. I hear you, Sam. I hear you, Sam. Sounds good, right? How many of you have ever, have you ever watched little tiny sparrows or even little robins in the springtime? Anybody ever watched that? Yeah. Are the sparrows and robins just kicking back in sparrow and robin hammocks? No, they're not, are they? They're going after it the entire time, aren't they? Have you ever watched, have you ever watched little robin? He's just, he bounces and he doesn't stop and he digs and he digs and he finds the worm and then after he finds the worm, he flies it up to the little nest and he you know, gives it to the little baby birds there and then, and then back down and he's digging and he's fine. And they're chasing grasshoppers. and Yeah, I mean, if some of us read that scripture and thought, well, the Lord is saying, you know, order yourself a great big football package on DirecTV. Turn the heat up to 90. Open the doors and the windows and I'll be there for you, you'd be foolish. Verse 27. Jesus says this, he says, Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? You see, here's the deal. Worrying doesn't add to your life, it subtracts from your life. Worrying and anxiety can't add anything, it only subtracts. I read this absolutely, I, don't, I, I read a lot this week, I don't know what I was doing, but apparently reading. And um, there were a couple cardiologists back in the 50s, and I, I wrote their names down. One guy, his name was Milton Friedman, and the other dude was R.H. Rosenman. And these, uh, these cardiologists, they did some, uh, they did some research, and they, and they were researching they were researching uh, in a, about heart disease. And the reason they were researching heart disease in the 50s is because be- they began to notice that in the 50s, like heart disease in America just like skyrocketed, just took off. And they, they couldn't 
figure it out. So they decided, well, we're going we're gonna to research this and get to the bottom of it. And while they were researching, you know, they, they, they found, they, they, they looked for, you know, blood cholesterol. And they noticed that, you know, high blood pressure makes a difference. And they noticed that, like, if you're overweight, that makes a difference. And they outlined all these things. But then one of the things they did was they, they finally hit a ceiling and, and all, of the, all of the research wasn't quite coming together. And they realized that there was, there was another component that leads to heart disease, and the component was personality type. These are the two guys who developed A-type personality and B-type personality. Y'all heard of that? Okay? And here's what they found out. They found out that the A-type personalities, which are the driven, like, structure, let's go get it, kind of like me, they, they found out that people like me, not only, uh, they found out that people like me are more prone to worry, not only that, but they found out that they're three times more likely to have a stroke or a heart attack. It's like good news for me, right? See, here's the deal. Worry doesn't add anything to life. It only subtracts. And you might be thinking, well, I don't know if I'm a, I don't know if I'm a type A or a type B personality. Well, I want to read something to you. Type A personalities. We are very competitive. We compete over everything, and we find to our embarrassment that when we play board games with small children, we are desperately trying to win. We cannot, we cannot resist a telephone ringing. The worst thing in life that can happen to us is to get up, is to get up to get the telephone just as it stops ringing. We swap lanes in traffic jams, even though there is a universal eternal law that the lane we have just joined will now move more slowly than the lane we have just left. And when driving down the interstate, we are constantly working out complicated mathematical sums. Louisville is 90 miles. If I drive 90 miles per hour, it will take me an hour. If I drive 180 miles per hour, it will take me half an hour. If I drive at 70 miles per hour, that's too difficult. We hate to stop for gas. And why do we hate it so much? It's because when we pull in at the service station, we look out over the road and we see all the cars and trucks that we had overtaken passing us up. So... Can anybody here identify with that? That's type A, y'all. You're in, the, you're in the group. Come on. See, here's the deal. Worry doesn't add to life. It subtracts. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. We'll stop right there. Here's the deal. When Jesus looks at his disciples and he's talking to them and he says, hey guys, don't you know that God's going to take care of you? He's going to clothe you. And in fact, he's, you know, he's, clothed the, he's clothed the lilies of the field. Solomon couldn't even dress like these guys. Oh, you of little faith. You know, it's kind of Jesus' pet nickname for his disciple. Another way, that you, another way that you can translate that is little faiths. Dallas Willard puts it like that, little faiths. It's, it's, it's his pet nickname for his disciples. But it brings out a powerful point. Jesus looks at him and says, don't you know that the Lord, he takes care of the lilies of the field. He's going to take care of you guys. Oh, you guys of little faith. He's, drawing, he's pulling something out that's, that's really profound for us, and it's this. It's that faith has nothing to do with worry and anxiety. They're diametrically opposed. You, you, can't, be, you can't be moving in ever-increasing realms of faith and at the same time be, be feeding your pet monster that is anxiety and worry. You feed that thing, you, there's only so much food in the heart. And it will either go to worry and anxiety or it will go to faith. 
Because faith is ultimately about trust, and trust is ultimately about, am I, do I belong to the Father, or am, I an, or am I an orphan child that needs to go out and make his own way in the world? That's ultimately what worry about. Worry is a, is a plan of the enemy. Worry and anxiety is an attack of the enemy to ultimately divorce you from the reality that you belong to the Father and that you're not an orphan child and that, you, that the end and the outcomes of your life don't rest upon your strength alone. Worry and anxiety really says that I trust my needs as being greater than my father's ability to supply my needs. And after you feed yourself on that for a little while, you eventually say that God doesn't want to supply my needs. So here's the deal. You start, you start feeding the pet monster in your closet that is worry and anxiety. You give him the attention, the affection of your heart. You feed that little guy for a little while. And eventually, you get divorced from the, the reality that I am my father's and that he cares about me. You live with that for a little while, and the next step is, my father does not care about me. The next step is, I do not have a father. The next step is, it all rests on me. Let me tell y'all how this works in real life. When Heather and I first bought Sunshine, we had just moved home from ministry school. We had moved home from Charlotte, and when we came home from Charlotte, the Lord had given us one word. He said, go into business. He gave us both this word. He said, go into business. We got home, and we had a kid, and we had no money. We had moved down to Charlotte with several thousand dollars. We had lived, we had lived, the, uh, the, the, we had lived the good life of spending, and we came home with no money, and a kid, and we were living with my in-laws. Oh, man. Rock bottom, <laughs> Rock bottom baby. And, and, the Lord, and the Lord had given us this word. He'd given this word. He said, I want you to be in business for yourself. And so Heather and I spend eight months praying, Lord, do you want me to start a business or do you want me to buy a business? And it was the only prayer. I knew that he wanted me to have a business. Do you want me to buy a business? Do you want me to start a business? Which is a funny prayer because I had no money and I was living with my in-laws. You know? So we're praying, Lord, do you want me to buy a business or do you want me to start a business? And so for eight months, I worked at, the, at Robert's Landscaping. I was, I was just, I was grinding 14 hours a day. I was running like three landscape crews. I was fatigued. I'd come home and I, could, I was so tired. I remember coming home and, and my, you know, my new son, River, is there, and I love him, and I'm so tired, I just have no emotional energy left for him. And I remember I would just get a shower and go to bed. It was just, I was it. And, um, and so during this eight months, uh, my mother-in-law says, hey, I know that you guys are looking to be in business. I hear that sunshine's for sale. Why don't you go check it out? Now, you guys know me. I like my Coca-Cola, all right? But I decide I'll go in and check it out. I walked in, and as soon as I put my hand on the door, I opened it up, and I walked in, and as soon as I got in there, I just felt the presence of God come around me, and he said, buy it. I didn't even know how much it cost. So I leave there, end up calling Norman a couple days later, and uh, Norman and I work out the price, and after I get the price, I realize I'm going to need a loan from the bank. 
here's the deal. I don't have any money. I have no money, okay? I have a job that, that's providing for me so long as I live at my mother and father-in-law's house, okay? That's, that's how good it is. Heather's not working. She's stressed out. Got a baby. We don't know what we're doing. And the Lord says, I want you to buy this business. Call Norman. Norman, what do you want for your business? $120,000 for my business. That doesn't seem right, Norman. Why don't you take something less? No, I really don't want to take any less. We negotiated, finally got it down to $95,000. Okay? So, I go to the bank. I say, banker, I need $95,000. And they give it to me. Now, this, 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 that's miraculous. I, have, I still, to this day, do not know why they gave me the loan. When I think about it, it, goes, it, makes, it makes no sense. It was essentially an, an unsecured loan for ninety-five grand. They give it to me and Heather. I go in the first day. I don't know anything about the business. I couldn't tell you anything. I don't know how to run the cash register. I don't know how much inventory we should have. I don't know what sells, what doesn't sell. I don't know anything about anything in the store, okay? It wasn't until that day that anxiety jumped all over me. And at that point, I realized, man, I've got 30 days until I make a $1,200 payment to the bank and pay my employees. And somehow, hopefully, make enough for me and Heather because I can't work my other job now. And anxiety began to rule my life. And anxiety about money began to absolutely rule my life. It ruled my life. It ruled my life for three months straight about making those payments to the bank. And then to make it worse, Mike Janusky comes over and he goes, well, <clears throat> good news, Adam, you get to pay some quarterly taxes. I said, quarterly taxes? I didn't even know about quarterly taxes. And he hands me my tax bill. And I said, that? How can that be true? So on top of my bank notice, I've got quarterly taxes to pay. The anxiety train just like docked at my house. For, and, and Heather can tell you, I was an unpleasant person. And one day I was in the shower and I was just crying out to the Lord. While I was crying out to the Lord, I said, Lord, you've got to help me, man. I, I don't know what in the world you got me into. You told me to buy a business. I bought business. I'm freaking out. And just kind of while I'm doing freak out mode in the shower, the voice of the Lord just comes in the, sh- in the shower with me. And he just says, he says, I told you to buy sunshine and you did it. He says, I got you the loan. I'll pay it back. Man, I'm telling you, I was in the shower. I just felt, it was like 10 years jumped off of me. And from that day, I haven't been worried about money at all. Because here's the deal. Here's the deal. It's, It's knowing, see, here's the deal. Anxiety divorces you from the reality that I have a father and that I am his and that my well-being depends on him. Ultimately, it depends on him. It's not just how smart I am, how slick I am, and how good I can do the numbers. Because, man, y'all, I'm terrible at the numbers. The Lord said, I got the loan, I'll pay it back. Verse 31, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. There's that word heavenly father again. It's really about, this is really about trusting in the father. Here's the other thing I'd like to say too. Worry and anxiety, it's a pagan lifestyle. That's a hard way to say it. 
but it's a true way to say it. Worry and anxiety is a pagan lifestyle. You want to talk about the solution? Yeah, let's talk about the solution for just a minute here. The beginning part of the solution, and we've already hinted at it pretty hard, the beginning part of the solution is to realize that I belong to another and that I have a, that I have a heavenly father who is dramatically involved and interested in my well-being. Like whatever it takes to get that in your heart and in your mind, you have to get there that I have a heavenly father who is dramatically interested in my life and in my well-being. Let me put it to you this way. How many of y'all trust Jesus with your afterlife? How many of y'all trust in the father with your afterlife? How many of you trust him with Jesus with your life right now? Here's the deal. If he's good enough to handle your afterlife, surely to goodness he's good, to ha- good enough to handle your present life. Surely. So the beginning is to realize that, that my father, my father, and the hands that I'm placing my afterlife, the trust that I have that he's going to take care of me and not send me to hell, the, the, the trust that I have that he is going to provide for me a place and his eternal presence, that's the place where trust grows that he'll take care of my present condition. Not only that, verse 33 but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. See, here's the deal. Seeking, is a, seeking first his kingdom is, is the ultimate solution to, to divorcing a life of worry and anxiety. Let me put it this way. Most of us, most of us worry and, and are anxious about things that are cared for if we'll just seek first his kingdom. See, seeking first his kingdom makes anxiety and worry obsolete. All these things added unto you. And so you might be saying, well, Adam, how do you seek first? Here's how you seek first. You point every area of your life toward the kingdom of heaven. Everything that you're responsible for, you point it toward the kingdom of heaven. God, I'm giving, you, I'm giving you say and access to my life, to my finances, to my children, to my hopes and to my dreams. I give you, I give you permission to define and redefine anything that, that I'm responsible for, anything that, that takes up space in my heart or in my mind. God, I give you access to that. That's how you, that's how you begin to seek first his kingdom. How many of y'all have ever moved for a job? How many of y'all have ever moved for the kingdom? So here's the deal. We can't be the kind of people who just move for jobs. We've got to be the kind of people who move for the kingdom. You know, most people will pack their kids up, rip them out of school, go 3,000 miles across, across the country just so they can get a job that pays them $12,000 more a year and never give a thought to, what would the Lord say about this? It's a complete, it's a, it's a worldview and it's a priority shift. God, you have access to every part of my heart. You have access to my finances. You have access to everything. It's called having kingdom focus and it's, it's called making the kingdom the priority. Any of you guys ever read that book by Malcolm Gladwell called Outliers? 
Man, Outliers is a really good book. Outliers is a book about, basically it's about what makes success. And he's, basically he, he writes a 280-page book that you can read in one afternoon. And the basic premise of the book is that all of the things that you think made success are mostly myths. And he goes, he goes about just by chapter by chapter debunking them. And he has a long chapter and it's called the 10,000-hour rule. Anybody in here ever heard of the 10,000-hour rule? The 10,000-hour rule goes like this. Basically, in order to be considered a master or to reach worldwide significance and, and to, to reach a level of worldwide excellence in anything, business, art, music, anything, it takes 10,000 hours of practice to get to that point. And, 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 what they've, and when you read his book, um, he, has, he has a segment in there, and they, uh, they go and they interview all these people who play on world-famous world symphonies. And you know the difference between the first chair violinist and the second chair violinist? In every single case, the difference between the first chair violinist and the second cha- chair violinist. Do you know what the difference is? 10,000 hours. First chair violinist has 10,000 hours of practice or more. Second chair, something less. Every time. And they've also done this, uh, they've also looked at hockey players. This, is, this was bizarre. Hockey players. Uh, almost every hockey player in the NHL is born between January and May. Why? They're born between January and May because the sign-up cutoff for, for hockey in Canada for youth leagues is in January. So if, you're, if, you're, if you have a birthday that's in January, you're the oldest kid, okay? The kids who are born in, born in December, they get to play in that same year, but what, they're the youngest. And so the older kids are, and when you're four or five years old, you know, 10 months difference in age is a significant, adva- significant advantage. So the older kids are more physically developed. They go out and they kick the other kids' butts. The kids who kick butt get onto traveling teams. The kids who are on traveling teams do what? They practice more. By the time you get to the NHL, the people who have played, uh, who have played the most are the ones who are playing for pay. And it doesn't matter what, what doesn't matter what profession you look at. Uh, the most successful brain surgeons, the most successful violinists, the most successful artists, the most successful athletes, they have one thing in common, and it's called 10,000 hours. You say, well, Adam, why are you talking about 10,000 hours and seeking first the kingdom? Here's the deal. Do you realize that if you want to be a first chair, 10,000 hour violinist, you have to prioritize your life about, around being a first chair, 10,000 hour violinist? You want to live the good life of the kingdom? You have to focus and prioritize your life around living the good life of the kingdom. Here, here's what 10,000 hours looks like. 10,000 hours is this. 10,000 hours is three hours a day, every day, for 20 years. Nikes. I think I remember that math right. It may be wrong, but it's a, it's a long time, y'all. Like, you don't do 10,000 hours in, ten, in, in two years. You don't do 10,000 hours in two years. See the type A personalities? They're all freaking out. They're like, I just, I saw it on your face. You're going, the, the, yeah, the, the iPhone people. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and do the math for us? Uh, three hours a day. Weekends, it's every day. 
10 years, thank you. You don't do it in two years. There's, there's, something, there's something about focus and priority. There's something, about, there's something about what you say yes to. Here's the deal. When you say yes to living the good life of the kingdom, it's not just saying yes, but it's being willing to say no to other things. See, here's the deal. Becoming a master at life requires not just the ability to say yes to Jesus and your kingdom, but it requires the good sense and the wisdom to know that I'm also going to say no to a lot of other things. You, you, it's, inco- it's impossible and it's incongruent. You can't live the good life of the kingdom without having kingdom focus and kingdom priority that seeks first the kingdom of God. And if you seek first the kingdom of God, what that, is, what that intrinsically means is you're not seeking a lot of other things. Now, here's the really good news, okay? It's always got, we always got to come back to good news. The good news is this. If you seek first the kingdom of God, if you make it your life's priority, if you make the kingdom of heaven your life's priority to the extent that you are willing to lay down reputation the way the world uh, grabs for reputation, if you're willing to say no to certain things, in the end, you get it all. Not, and when, when I say in the end, I'm not talking about dying and going to heaven and getting it all. I'm talking about on this earth, you get it all. The most successful and generous people that I know are people who have lived with kingdom priority. The most successful, the most blessed, the most generous, the most open-handed are all people who have focused their life and said, I, I'm, going, I'm, going to, I'm going to lean kingdom first. Without fail. Ask Tiger Woods. Speaking of Tiger Woods, you know why he's the best golfer in the world? 10,000 hours. He was playing golf when he was barely big enough to swing it. He was like two years old. You've seen that footage of him out there with his dad? Yeah. He got his 10,000 hours in before most people, before most people beat, you know, Super Mario 2. Is he talented? Yeah. Kingdom focus. Thanks, Lord. Thanks, Lord. If you're on the ministry team this morning, why don't you come on up? Hey, Jesse, why don't you come over here? Ultimately, it doesn't matter. I'm just a type A personality, and balance means everything. Uh, why don't you come sit beside me, Marcus? Come right here. See, I feel better already. I guess that's a form of anxiety disorder right there, huh? Mm. Marcus has a list. Come on, Marcus.
Thanks, Lord. Yeah, we're not going to use this today. The little thing says, incompatible master list. I've never seen that in my life. All right, let's just talk loud. Who's got, Jesse, you got a word? I do. Yeah. That's a good word. Trav, you got any words? That's a word for the church. That's just good. Thanks. Sarah? Inside of the left foot, behind the ankle, shoots up. Yeah, anybody have a left ankle that's jacked up, though? Anybody here? Okay. All right, why don't we stand up? Hmm. Yeah, Lord, we love you, Jesus. I feel like the Lord really wants to set people free from anxiety and worry this morning. In addition to everything else that the ministry team said, anxiety and worry is a killer, and uh, the Lord just wants to deal with that. Um, If you regularly deal with anxiety and worry, if it's okay, just put your hand up. If that's you, just put your hand up. You know, I'm a worrier, and that's me. Dang, okay. Holy smokes, Jesus, help us. All right, here's what we're going to do. Um, just, just keep your hand up just slightly. Okay, people, just let's start. Just find somebody with their hand up. Everybody's the ministry team this morning. You are the ministry team. Find someone. If, if there's not somebody over next to you, find another person with their hand put up. All right. Thanks, Lord. Everybody's the ministry team this morning, so we're just gonna, we're going to cry out for one another. Is that all right? I'm going to pray, but I, I'm just going to lead the prayer. I want everyone to pray out loud, and let's just, let's just begin to speak the peace of God over the person in front of you, okay? Father, we love you, and God, we want, we want to give. 
We want to give you our anxiety and our worries and our fears. And Father, we ask that right now that you would infuse this atmosphere with peace. God, we ask that you would infuse hearts and infuse worried minds with peace. God, for those of us who have racing minds, God, we ask that you would, you would break the cycle of that right now in Jesus' name. God, for those of us who are always on a 5, 10, 15-year plan, we ask that you, would, that you would break the attachment to that in Jesus' name and that you would, that you would infuse us with peace and you'd allow us to stay in the moment. Now, as you're praying for somebody, I want you to just speak to anxiety and worry, and I just want you to command it to leave, okay? Some of us just have a spirit that's attached to us. And so, Father, we just speak to that in Jesus' name. And Father, we ask that you would release the joy of your son Jesus into the room. Father, would you release the joy of your son Jesus into the room? God, would you give us the light burden and the easy yoke of your son Jesus? God, would you let it be a tangible presence that rests upon us even right now? I feel like some of us are going to experience just like a tangible, like um, you're just going to feel the presence of God begin to rest on you right now. Thanks, Lord. We love you so much. Father, we ask that this week we would be the solution and not the problem. Father, we ask for an anointing to to press beyond fear and to move into greater realms of trust to be the solution 